Hi, welcome to Life Stories, a Beatrice.com podcast about memoirs and memoir writers. I'm Ron Hogan, and my guest today is Sarah Mangusso. Her second memoir is The Guardians, an elegy, which recently came out in paperback from Picador. And welcome. Thank you. Sarah and I actually go back a ways. I first met her in 2008 when her first memoir came out, uh, The Two Kinds of Decay. And it turns out, as I was reading The Guardians, that really a lot of sort of the initial wave of what you were going through that you described in this book happened just before we met in September of 2008. That's true. That's true. And I remember... I remember meeting you at Housing Works, and I remember standing against the bookcase and having my picture taken. But I don't remember. Yeah, I don't. I don't remember being consumed by these events, which obviously, had, as you said, just happened on July twenty third of that year. Let's talk a little bit about what happened on July twenty third, two thousand eight. Well, page one of the book outlines what happened, and it is essentially that my friend. Harris escaped or eloped from a psychiatric ward at a hospital in Manhattan, was missing for 10 hours, and jumped in front of a train in the Bronx. This was right as you were coming home from a, a year in Rome on a, on a fellowship, right? Yeah, I was away for an academic year, and I, I went a little bonkers myself that year, and... I was cut off from most of my actual life, um, and I, I used this. I, I, I basically used the opportunity as an excuse to leave everything as it was in the states and to sort of live in this suspended reality. And so I wasn't really as closely in touch with Harris or with my other friends as I think any normal person should have been. Uh, most of the other fellows had visitors, uh, but none of my friends visited. And when I got home, I, I sort of, I holed up with um, my partner who had been in Rome with me too. And so Harris was hospitalized actually about a week after we got home. And then by the time he died, I, I hadn't yet spoken with him or, or even reached out. And, you know, I hadn't called him and he hadn't called me. You know, it, it had been a significant amount of time since we had spent any real substantial time together. When we met two months later, you mentioned in the interview that you were working on a fiction project, the oh, novel. Did I? Yeah. yeah. And clearly you know, that, that didn't happen. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, clearly that didn't happen. I mean every few years I think um, I should I should try to write fiction again because it's you know, it's like the normal thing to write. Or or so it seems to me. The Guardians is actually a title that I've been hanging on to since about 2003. I originally wrote actually a, a book-length poem, of all things, with that title, and it was this really bombastic mess about authenticity and other abstractions, and, and that's that's gone. It, it, the world is a better place for it being gone, and, and yet the title just retained this hold over me, so uh, while I was in Rome, I began a novel called The Guardians, it was about a kind of research prison, and I, I plotted it out, feeling convinced that real fiction writers plan their the, the pacing of their book before they write them. But of course, as soon as I paced it out, I became incredibly bored of it. But I think when I saw you, Ron, I, I 
just started to enter that final transformation from the Guardians, the novel, to the Guardians, the essay that it, that it ultimately became. One of the things that comes up in the essay is, you know, getting back to this idea that when you came back from Rome, you kind of stayed in, in your own head and were not reaching out to other people. On the flip side of that, the grief that you are experiencing and that you write about, you, you talk about how, like, this grief isn't to help other people like get through their loss. This, this is my grief. I think it's just a general tendency to shy away from admitting that one is self-absorbed or, or selfish. But it just seemed to me that I really had to get to the bottom of my, my, my total self-involvement in order to just move on to the next, the next thing in life. You know, if I, if I had been raised any better, I think I would have had a harder time with it. But um, I, had, I basically made a made a career of self-absorption from from you know, my twenties to now. So, so yeah, my my tendency is to isolate when I'm managing a big feeling, and so I just I just isolated myself. I I skipped. There's there's a wonder. Or what I hear was a wonderful commemorative concert which Harris's many bands played, during which his music compositions were performed by, or, or I think a small orchestra, and people came and people ate and people sang. It was, it was, I think, it filled the entire weekend, and I just, I just didn't go. This, this is, I'm like the cat that crawls under the house to die. Like that, that's just how I manage. So I just did that, and in the book, I very baldly exposed just how totally self-involved I was for years after Harris died. Let's backtrack a little bit and talk about how Harris came to place. Uh, I guess, what was the role he sort of played in your life? Well, in a period of my life that began after my higher education was over, but before I'd made any substantial commitments to a city or a job or a partner, there's this prolonged post-adolescence that a lot of people are making art about these days. Um, I just, I just, I jogged here because I wanted to see the end of an episode of Girls, um, but it's, you know, I'm, I'm sort of the generation before them. But it, my life consisted of spending time with friends and talking about how terrifying it was to make adult commitments. And Harris was just a fantastic companion. He was one, of, he was just one of my main people. And we would just. We enjoyed New York as two kids without any school loans can enjoy it. So we, um, I moved in to an apartment where he and three other three other of our friends lived in 1997, and we were really close until 2008, so about 10 years. Although your mental health situations are not exactly analogous, no, they're. Are a couple of points of reference, particularly I think in there's a section where you talk about the effect that you recognized some of the medication that you were taking having on you and wondering if a similar thing might have happened to Harris in 2008. Yeah, there's a, a particular side effect of some psychiatric drugs called apathesia, which essentially feels like what I'm told restless leg syndrome feels like, but it's pervasive throughout the entire body. It's described in the literature as early as the 19th century, but the name akathisia was given to it around the turn of the 20th century by a Czech neurologist 
the word means the inability to to sit and there's this anecdote that goes along with the original report that describes one of Napoleon's chief officers just habitually being unable to sit down at important strategic meetings and he would just pace around the table and go around and around and around. Of course, he wasn't receiving these psych meds, so in him the effect was organic, but it's very typical now to, especially these um, situations in hospitals where, where patients get big, big shots of antipsychotics like Haldol, to then see them see them sort of trembling and jittery and unable to sit still. And it's not really, it's not just anxiety as it often is diagnosed as, but it's this strange sensory discomfort. And it's now generally accepted that if left untreated, the experience of having anesthesia very often ends with the patient suiciding or committing a homicide. And those who commit suicide do it specifically by jumping. So it's in my nature to try, try to find information or, or try to sort of intellectualize away feelings that I can otherwise not deal with. So one of my first instincts after Harris died was to just research, research, research until I could find something that might stand in for an actual answer of why my friend killed himself, which is, which is, of course, the unanswerable question after any suicide. There's a description in the book of akathisia where you, you write about it as your whole body being scratched to death from the inside by a dybbuk. And there are a couple other mentions of dybbuks and ghosts in the, in the memoir in a way that, I mean, it's not like you make a big deal out of them, but at the same time, it's not like you... They don't seem to simply be metaphors, either. Oh, no, they're not. Harris belonged to an observant Jewish family, and I, I belong to a significantly less observant Jewish family. But that, too, was something of a point of reference. I spent a Passover with his family one year, and I you know, I knew his grandma Thelma, and oh, I still know his grandma Thelma and, and several other of his relatives. And the, the language of Jewish mysticism and just the... Jewish diaspora was just part of the general conversation. After 9-11 happened, I went with Harris to his parents' house in Long Island. And I don't mean that whenever I was with his parents, we talked about Dybbuk's, but once the idea of a Dybbuk entered the conversation, and it was Harris's sister who originally suggested it to me, it just, it, yes, it seemed, I mean, you put it really well, it's, it's not... It wasn't exactly metaphorical, but it wasn't exactly non-metaphorical either, and it, and it just didn't seem to me to be terribly important to try to um, claim or decide whether the Dybbuk were real or completely imagined or somewhere in between. You write about how like one of the reasons that you initially thought about this as a novel was the inability to really know what happened during those ten hours between the time that Harris walked out of the psychiatric ward and the time that he jumped in front of the train. You still sort of grapple with that that unknown 10 hours a lot, even in this non-fictional approach. Insofar as anyone is unknowable, I mean, that that's the least knowable part of Harris's life, and people who knew him had theorized about it, and it's possible that he walked around for 10 hours and wondered and wondered if he should kill himself or do something else. And it's possible that he 
was just raving, or and it's possible that he sat on the train platform for a long time. And and I think if I were a different kind of writer, I, I would have been able to come up with a narrative to fill those ten hours, or or a hundred different narratives to fill those ten hours. But I I tried to do that, and ultimately it brought me no solace whatsoever. And it, it brought me no solace even to to try to use my reason to you know, estimate what might most probably have happened during those ten hours. At the end of the book, I mean, I, I realized that the only thing I can do is to just really let those let those ten hours go and be part of this mystery. I was also struck by something that you wrote about how the poet's side of, of your writing, your your poetic voice, feels like closed off in a way, and that was part of the reason that you've turned to these kinds of essayistic memoirs in, in recent years? That's definitely something that has happened. I, I write I write things that both I and other people call essays as opposed to writing things that I and other people call poems. And, and, and I can say that they're definitely, what I write now is longer than what I used to write. In the past, I, I have tried to provide this narrative of, of you know how I started writing poems and then something mysterious happened you know psychiatrically or experientially and now I, I only write prose but I guess although I do state in the guardians that after I started taking a certain medication in 2004 I never wrote another poem that is true but I'm trying to I'm just trying to think about that in a larger context and I think it's more complicated actually than I, than I put it I think it you know as with anything there are just multiple causes and I, I and I, I can't really know why I write anything I write I just you know I, I can't tell you that I, I I think it would be great to write a novel and like get paid a lot of money to do it but uh, every time I try to do it it, it it just it just becomes hopelessly stalled and I, I become bored and, and I just can't do it yeah there's that sort of common image of the creative person with the psychiatric issues who foregoes the medication because it affects his or her creativity. And clearly the situation, as you've described it, is more complex than that. But I'm also thinking of a situation you described or, or theorize about with Harris towards the end, where there are the side effects, including possible akathisia, that he is experiencing, that maybe one possible explanation is that he would have foregone knowing that it's like, well, if I take this medication... I am going to feel these side effects versus if I don't take these this medication, I just might not have a relapse. And he did make that decision a couple of times. I mean, he, he had only three psychotic breaks in his entire life, which, as I say in the book, I mean, the, the psychotic parts of his life occupied almost no part of it. I mean, if you calculate the ratio of hours or days, it's just it's laughably insubstantial. And it, the fact that he died during the third one is just the result of... Well, it's, it's bad luck, essentially. But yeah, this idea of the, the creative person as the person that should forego medication to, um, you know, in order to be maximally creative, I, I don't subscribe to that at all. And all of the people with actual life-threatening mental illness I've known, you know, creative and not, would just would never, would never consider not being treated. Actually, now that I say that, I can, I think, I can think of a couple of writers who resist being medicated, but I think, you know, ultimately, if, if the medication allows you to function in the world, then I think that the, the general tendency is to take it. When we spoke about the two kinds of decay back in 2008, 
you mentioned that the writing process there was, and I'm paraphrasing here, but you, you wrote the first scene, then realized it's like, oh, there's a detail here that I really need to contextualize and explain. And then so you had to write another scene to explain that. And then there was something else in that scene that you had to backtrack to, to sort of explain. And so that it, the story sort of built up as you were explaining things backwards. Yeah. Was there a similar process in writing The Guardians? I mean, how did these scenes sort of accrete uh, into that's a, a That's story? a really good question. I should really know a good answer to that. It is true that The Two Kinds of Decay was, was sort of just... It was, it was easy to write because I didn't know I was writing a narrative. And as you said, I just I wrote a little essay that included a, a particular detail that then needed to be contextualized in another scene and then so on and so forth. And then I had written this narrative backwards and with loop-de-loops. The Guardians wasn't, it didn't really come out as a narrative. I mean, it's, it's, it contains narrative now, but it was really just a meditation. And it, it felt much less useful as I was writing it. When I was writing The Two Pounds of Decay, I thought, oh, I have to clarify this. I, I always knew exactly what to write next. But The Guardians, I was just, I was trying to find a way to articulate the crazy feeling of profound grief. And... It, well, it, it just, it, it demanded a lot of different approaches, or, or rather, I, I found that no sooner would I start with one approach, the sort of, the sharing of a narrative anecdote, then I realized that I, I wasn't articulating anything that I needed to articulate, and so then I, there were some lyric portions of it, and then I would, I would, I would attempt some sort of lyric representation of the feeling, and then that wouldn't work, and then I would do something else, and Essentially, it, the Guardians came to be as a kind of patchwork, just as the two kinds of decay was. But ultimately, I just I strung everything together, and I know the experience of reading it because I've read aloud from it can sometimes cause a little whiplash as as I'm going from a lyric mode or several clinical reports from scientific literature. But I retained that structure because it was representative of the way that grief felt for me. Things would become clear and then murky and then clinical and then just a wreck of, of self-absorption and then, and then on to the next thing. Now that you have two of these long essays, you mentioned earlier that you've tried writing novels a couple of times and it hasn't uh, panned out yet. Hopeless. So where do you go from here? Well, I'm working on another essay. It's about diaries and autobiographical memory and it arose from my general and ongoing anxiety that I forget most of what happens to me, as everyone forgets most of what happens to him or her, because our brains are just not physiologically able to retain what I call the memory of ongoing time. We remember the, the, the high points, and, and then all of that time during which almost nothing happens is, is compressed and then ultimately lost. And I just have this irrational anxiety that I'm, I'm missing the opportunity to go back over these periods of time during which almost nothing happened. It's called ongoingness, and it's it, it'll be a complete mess for the next three years or so, but um, I'm definitely in it. I'm in the muck of it right now. Well, that gives us something to look forward to in the future. In the meantime, I encourage everybody to find The Guardians, an elegy by Sarah Manguso. It's just come out in paperback from Picador. You have been listening to Life Stories. I'm Ron Hogan, and I hope you'll join me for another episode soon. <laughs>